I'm Laura Jones, and this is Radioactive. It's a show that plugs you into the community, from grassroots activists and community builders to punk rock farmers and DIY creatives. Coming up, a Thanksgiving Eve edition of Poetry Still Happens with Trish Hopkinson of Rock Canyon Poets. She invited a couple of her poet friends to join us on a Zoom call. Can't wait for you to hear it. Earlier today, I connected with librarians and a parent concerned about this current cry to ban books in schools. Books that happen to be, by and large, by or about folks of color or LGBTQ. Makes me yearn for the gentler days of Tipper Gore and the Parents Music Resource Center. Ah, salad days. And we'll close the show with another round of Meet the DJ, this time Brian Kelm of Red, White & Blues, a show that's been around just a few months less than KRCL, by the way. Our 42nd birthday coming up on December 3rd, folks. Before we get started, I just wanted to say thank you to everyone who donated or supported today's Thanksgiving meal giveaway with Crossroads Urban Center and Harmons. I stopped by to see how it was going, and here's what Glenn Bailey had to say. So tell me how the day went, getting this all arranged and starting to give out food. Well, this is the second time we've done a drive-through Thanksgiving uh, turkey giveaway, and it's going very well, very smoothly. Um, We've served a lot of people, maybe not quite as many as last year, but... Um, we've got a few more hours to go. How many pounds of food do you think you've given out? I don't know. We were prepared to do 3,700 turkeys. And sides, Plus three sides each, right? Three sides to go with it. And last year, I think we ended up somewhere more than 3,400. So probably about 3,000. With Harmon's help, what kind of sides were there today? Uh, mashed potatoes, stuffing, and gravy. Excellent choices. <laughs> So Crossroads Urban Center helps folks year-round, though. You've got the food pantries. Where can people learn more? At our website, crossroadsurbancenter.org. We run two food pantries all year-round. And you've got staples, I'm guessing, that you still need after this holiday. Absolutely. Um, We are active every day feeding people. We need non-perishable food items, fresh food items, pretty much anything that folks can donate. Thanks, Glenn. Thank you. Glenn Bailey of Crossroads Urban Center, another nonprofit in our community, up to good trouble as always. Check tonight's show notes for a link to their essential items needed for their food pantries or their thrift stores or any one of a number of causes that they work on, like Powerful Moms Who Care and the Coalition of Religious Communities, which brings people together to learn about the causes of hunger and homelessness. In fact, during today's meal giveaway, they had a press conference to formally announce their call to repeal the state sales tax on food here in Utah. Here's just a clip. Good afternoon. I am Reverend Kim James, and I'm the pastor of the First United Methodist Church in Ogden. This gathering today is sponsored by the Coalition of Religious Communities, We've found that all different religious faiths care about the poor and want to advocate on their behalf. As I've been personally preparing for the upcoming Advent and Christmas season in my church, I read again the words of John the Baptist who called crowds of people to prepare the way for Christ. In the Gospel of Luke, John told them, whoever has two coats should share one and whoever has food should share food. Luke then goes on to say that even the tax collectors came to be baptized and they asked John the Baptist what they should do. And John said to them, collect no more taxes than the amount prescribed for you. 
The Coalition of Religious Communities is here today to say that the amount of state taxes prescribed on groceries should be zero. Amen. We're calling on the Utah legislature to eliminate the 1.75% state tax on groceries. There are several people here who will speak briefly on this issue. But before I turn over the microphone to them, I want to tell you about my own personal experience. I did a little research this morning on my own household's grocery expenses. I totaled up the 3% food tax on a month's worth of groceries. Then I removed the amounts attributable to the city and county taxes. And what was left was the 1.75% collected by the state of Utah. I discovered that in my one month of groceries for my family, I paid $14.62 of grocery taxes to the state of Utah. I did a little more research this morning and discovered that $14.62 could have bought five gallons of milk or four gallons of gasoline or three giant boxes of Cheerios or two pounds of lean ground beef, or one small package of diapers plus taxes. For a middle-class household like mine, that $14.62 expense of Utah food tax isn't a horrible burden. But for low-income families, think what that $14.62 in one month could provide. What if we eliminated that 1.75% Utah state tax. Amen. Like John the Baptist said, we should collect no more taxes than are prescribed. And our prescription for state taxes on groceries is zero. Thank you. Reverend Kim James of First United Methodist Church in Ogden, joining with the Coalition of Religious Communities and other civic organizations to demand the state sales tax on unprepared foods be dropped to zero. Watch this space. We'll be bringing you more folks on this issue in the weeks to come as we head toward the general session of the Utah legislature in January. With this call to the community in mind, with this holiday in mind, how about a bit of love, love, love from my morning jacket? Poetry still happens up next. This is Radioactive on KRCL. Support for KRCL comes from the Utah Division of Arts and Museums. They provide support, services, and funding for artists and cultural organizations across the state of Utah. More at artsandmuseums.utah.gov. Did you know that a portion of your Amazon purchases could benefit KRCL? Support local nonprofits, including KRCL, through Amazon Smile by visiting smile.amazon.com and selecting your preferred organization. Find details under the support tab at krcl.org. Thanks. This is Radioactive, and I'm Laura Jones. I hope you get to spend some time this holiday weekend with those you love, hopefully you at least like, and that you talk about anything but politics, all right? Just leave that off the menu. You know, maybe you could have a poem or two in your back pocket to redirect the conversation to gratitude. I reached out to Rock Canyon poets Trish Hopkinson for another round of Poetry Still Happens, and... 
Here's some food for thought. Hi, Trish. What's on your Thanksgiving table this year? I have lots of vegetarian sides. <laughs> oh, yeah. You guys go vegan, huh? Pretty much. Yes. Mm. Vegetarian, at least. As we rapidly approach the end of 2021, would you say it's been a creative year for Utah Poets? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think poets are are continuing to to do some really excellent work and to write about the strangeness that we've had this last year, for sure. And Rock Canyon Poets, your website, you always keep track of opportunities for poets. What's that website there where folks can pick up your latest newsletter where you've got call for Utah poets and such? So that's just rockcanyonpoets.com. And you can go to the Poetry Still Happens menu and see all the different event posts. And there are calls for poems and uh, other events and places where you can virtually uh, watch poetry and contribute. Well, Trish, will you kick us off tonight with one of your own verses? Sure, be happy to. What you got? This one uh, definitely has a lot of gratitude in it. So I thought I would read Ode to a Young Screech Owl. Ode to a Young Screech Owl. To you who left a mouse pellet in my backyard, thank you. Thank you for your nightly visits, your gentle calls. I've seen you perch in the ash tree, certain in your footing, sturdy on an extended limb. I name you wholeness for your whole life long, for the acknowledgement of your call, a question you pose each evening, your silhouette blurred, camouflaged by branch and bark, the porch light glinting off each iris when you crook your brow. What does this world offer to a screech owl? What but a mouse, its scraps wrapped up tidily, left for me to find in daylight's prism. The skull carefully tucked in, surrounded by small bones, shroud of hair, a casket or rather a sacrifice offered, a field mouse that gives you will to live another day. Not unlike my own nervous impulses, scurrying in bits of fodder, scavenging string and straw to nest, building prospect only to be snatched up in your talons, swallowed whole. Soft annihilation leaves bones unbroken, dissolves muscle, fat, skin, and heart. I harden myself to keep my inside soft, like the screech owl, and cannot eat again until the remains are let go. Oh, there's my gratitude for you. Some poetry mm -hmm. still happens, snaps for you, Trish. Thank you so much. Thank you. I'm saying you have some personal news. Don't you have a few poetic achievements to talk about? Oh, I did. Um, I was a finalist in a contest, the Jack Grapes Prize, which was pretty cool. So out of, I think, 1800 poems they said they received, I was one of the top nine. So that was pretty cool. Cash prize. Sweet. Never hurts. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Let's have one of the poems. Uh, let's all right, let's have one of the poets that you've invited to join us. Would you like to introduce Marianne? So this is Marianne Hales-Harding, and she runs a really incredible uh, open mic in downtown Provo, and they are back in person, right, Marianne? Yeah, on the third Thursday of every month. Provo Poetry, right? Yep, yep, and Speak for Yourself open mic is what we call the open mic itself. All right, so what's the website where folks can catch up with that, and then let's hear a poem. Provo Poetry. Dot org. All right, folks, we'll put that in the show notes. Marianne, as a poet, um, we may be putting a little gratitude onto this conversation, but we'd love to hear whatever you have to <laughs> offer. 
<laughs> thank you. Thank you. Well, don't don't throw any tomatoes about at me because this is this is a I know we're in Thanksgiving, but my gratitude poem has a little bit of Christmas in it. All right, um, let's hear it. <laughs> I know it's, it's a little early, few days, but it's called uh, To My Neighbors at Christmas. My single string, which falls short of the far side of the porch, unreliably lit and mostly crooked, belies my love of the miracle when we fall back into the dark days of winter with the resignation of the condemned, only to be granted a short holiday furlough of light, 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 light. You may not know that the hours spent mildly swearing under your breath on a shaky ladder were an act of compassionate service for your neighbor who can't keep the gutters winterized or the sidewalks shoveled, much less make the eaves blink red and green. My single string, the widow's might of Christmas lights, your 5,000, my loaves and fishes. Ah, Marianne, <laughs> thank you for that. I'm, I'm, I am that neighbor who has the same issues with their gutters. <laughs> And they're yeah. like, so to all of the neighbors who can get their Christmas on, whatever their decorations are on, thank you, thank you, yeah. thank you. Where can people catch up with you and your poetry, Marianne? Uh, well, you can find me on Blogspot, Marianne Hales Harding at blogspot.com. We'll be sure to put you in the show notes. All Thanks. right. Trish, we have another poet that you asked to join us for this Thanksgiving Eve edition of Poetry Still Happens on KRCL's Radioactive. Please do the honors. Yes, so happy to have Dennis Clark joining us. We also like to call him Pun DMC. <laughs> <laughs> I love it, Pun DMC. What you got for us, Dennis? Set this up and let her rip. Well, for many years, my wife has grown flowers around the house, and I have cut them down and put them in vases and brought them into the house. This is about one of those innocents, a time when she was feeling ill. And I thought she deserved some fresh flowers. It's called April Flowers. The daffodils were bowed with snow. We cut them down and put them in a vase to bring them to your bed with hyacinths and narcissi. We lifted up their drooping heads with water in the crystal, blown and cut to make the flowers grin and dance in modest, shortened bliss and light the room with cheer's good kin, as if the blooms had grown in glass and fed on light, but now they spread the way the winter puffs and blows. That's my Thanksgiving gratitude snaps for you, Dennis Clark. That was fantastic. Well, I'm glad to hear it. I was just going to say one of the most important aspects of gratitude to me is gratitude for the things that grow, the living things, the way the earth blossoms, as opposed to what you would expect in a desert like Utah. That underscores your poem all the more for me. What's on your Thanksgiving table this time of year? Well, this time of year, we're going to have a turkey. This is what we usually do. Uh, Valerie, my wife, is... Uh, not only a vegetarian, she hates the thought of eating a bird that could have been out flying, but I like turkey. <laughs> so you got to cook the turkey for yourself. Which means I have to cook the turkey <laughs> myself. Uh, I, I baste it 
with a cheap white wine. <laughs> Is because that the key? That makes it that that makes it a little a uh, little less like a dead bird <laughs> and a little more like a treat so what does your wife partake of then she likes to make original mashed potatoes from original potatoes not potato flakes and that takes almost as much effort and as long a time as my uh, cooking of the turkey well, you two have a great Thanksgiving. Thanks for sharing, Dennis. Thanks for Thank having you us. for the uh, opportunity. And Trish, thank you for the invitation. You bet. So Trish, just a few of the poets you helped put together for our Thanksgiving Eve Poetry Still Happens session. Stick around, folks. I got a few more tidbits from some Utah poets. But Trish, where can people catch up with you? And again, those notes on calls for submission. Yeah, so uh, you can catch up with me at trishhopkinson.com or selfishpoet.com. Both of those will get you there. And uh, rockcanyonpoets.com also has a list of uh, Utah calls, but uh, my website has plenty as well. So if you're looking to get your work published, there are a lot of opportunities out there for you to send your work out. And Trish, I'm so grateful for your continued partnership here on Radioactive for Poetry Still Happens. Have a safe and happy holiday. Thanks. You too. And that is Poetry Still Happens on Radioactive. Check tonight's show notes for a link to Trish and Rock Canyon Poets and Marianne and Dennis as well. You're listening to KRCL 90.9, Democracy Now! coming up at 7, followed by Emily's Mixtape at 8, Maximum Distortion with Forgash and Cody D at 10.30, Your Root Awakening with Liz at 3 a.m., and then John Florence will bring you a Thanksgiving edition of Brand New Day at 6. Happy holidays. If you're looking to help those in need this holiday season, visit the Connect page of krcl.org to find places to donate food, clothing, gifts, and more. And thanks for helping out. Up next, librarians are not being quiet when it comes to banning books. Hey, Salt Lake County Parks and Rec needs lifeguards, and you can try it out December 11th during the county's Just Try It lifeguarding event, open to folks ages 14 and up. Get all the details at bit.ly slash slcoguard. Thanks to George S. and Dolores Dore Eccles Foundation for investing in KRCL and communities throughout Utah. You're listening to Radioactive on KRCL, and I'm Laura Jones. Have you seen the headlines? Parents and politicians of the current era suddenly up in arms about the books available to their students in school libraries. And Utah librarians are alarmed, to say the least, whether they'll be shushing folks we don't know. We'll find out by passing the microphone. Hi, Davina. Will you introduce yourself? Hi there. Thank you for having me. Uh, my name is Davina Southoff. I am the executive director for Utah Educational Library Media Association, and I'm also a school librarian for Granite School District. Katie. Hi, my name is Katie Wagner, and I am the Utah Library Association's Intellectual Freedom Committee co-chair, and I'm also a public library branch manager with the Summit County Library System. And Rosalind. Hi, I am Rosalind Eves, and I am a mother of three in Southern Utah. I'm also a professor of English at SUU, and I also write young adult novels. All right, folks, let's dig into this issue. I am mindful of when I came of age, Tipper Gore and the Parents Music Resource Council that was trying to keep those songs from me, not to mention books as well. They kind of dove into all of that. It seems like every generation is reinventing the wheel when it comes to this issue. And I was hoping that, uh, Davina, you could kind of lay the landscape for us. What happened and how did it 
land with you and the librarians of the Utah Educational Library Media Association? Well, I think we first, um, just news articles out there, Canyon School District is going through um, some disagreements about what books should be available to their students. And as a school librarian, I'm actually the supervisor for my secondary school librarians. And so once we saw that, we just kind of all reached out to the organizations that we knew would be, um, uh, that would, would want to talk to this and make sure we're protecting um, our First Amendment rights and the right to read and, and read different perspectives. So that's kind of how I came about knowing more about it. All right, Katie, how about you over at the Utah Library Association, where the, you're the Intellectual Freedom Co-Chair, as you mentioned? Yeah, so it is something we've seen before, and it does seem to come in waves. So we've seen it with yeah, McCarthyism and then this satanic panic of the 90s when you saw books like Harry Potter being challenged. Um, and now we're really seeing it with any diverse books. There's a lot of coming of age books, um, books about the LGBTQ experience and those perspectives. Um, and I think we're seeing it a big rise with social media getting these books challenged in districts all over the nation. We're kind of seeing the same books be challenged all over the place. Well, and correct me if I'm wrong, wasn't Banned Books Week last month? Correct. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm having a little fun with this because I just I just find it so hard to take the older I get because I'm seeing it happen again. And I'm like, wait, we had this battle already. But a new generation of parents and politicians are finding it um, popular. Uh, is this an outgrowth of the political division that we see? I think it is. On the surface, when you see these parent groups, it really seems like we're talking about the same thing, your freedom to read, parents' rights, and we totally agree with that. What we don't agree with is calling books that are LGBTQ or books from different perspectives. We don't agree that those are pornography, and they're not under Utah code. And that seems to be one of the big points here, Davina. Can you talk about some of the books that have been challenged, particularly in Utah, and claims that they are obscene or pornographic? Um, so one of the books that I'm most familiar with uh, that I've actually read myself is called Gender Queer, and it is a memoir of uh, the author's experience herself from the time she was very young um, all the way up and through till grad school when she goes through, you know, she's exploring the feelings that she's having, why it ha she's having and why she's different from other kids. Um, it's a beautifully written story. There are some uh, sections in there that speak to her sexual experiences and those feelings that she's having there. Um, it does not meet the code for pornography in the state of Utah. And I think it's really important for you know, other kids who might be experiencing and trying to understand their own feelings to have um, a book that they can go to to process that. Um, so that would be one I would I would mention. Maybe let's go intellectual freedom here with Katie Wagner from the Utah Library Association. So um, talk to me about the point of law and how libraries and librarians approach books and um, categorizing them for age appropriateness. Yeah, so we encourage every library to have a policy in place where people can bring their concerns up about certain books, programs, anything, displays. Um, and these policies, we they're created in a public and open space, which is 
why it's so important that people follow their own policies um, because they're created so that we're following due process while we're also protecting the First Amendment. Um, and these policies really give us the opportunity to have real conversations instead of <laughs> just these targeted attacks. Um, because librarians are really open to having conversations. Sometimes we do need to move books or work with parents more to help them find books that are appropriate for their own child. And Davina, in the background information you sent to me prior to our conversation, uh, you mentioned something happening in Spotsylvania. <laughs> Where is that, first of all? And uh, what'd they find out when their lawyer talked to them about what they wanted to do? Well, they found out that removing books was unconstitutional. We have a 1982 Supreme Court case um, where the, the ruling said that libraries are centers for voluntary inquiry and that the dissemination of information and ideas that school libraries enjoy a special affinity with the rights of free speech and press. And I'm quoting that because I think the, the message of it being of the library being a voluntary inquiry location is really important. It's a self-select process. A student can go into a library and choose what they want to read. And parents should be involved in that process as well. Spotsylvania in Virginia, I believe, correct? Yes, I believe so. Um, one of my favorite quotes that I've been seeing going around from librarians is by Judy Bloom, author of Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret, a book which I had, if I had known about in my adolescence would have been great. I found it much later than that. But she said, let children read whatever they want and then talk about it with them. If parents and kids can talk together, we won't have as much censorship because we won't have as much fear. And I think this is where we need to bring in our parent, Rosalind Eves, who is also an English professor at Southern Utah University and author of Beyond the Map Stars a young adult historical set around the 1878 eclipse that went through the American West. Any challenges to your book, Rosalind, that you're aware of? Not yet, but it's only been out a couple months, so <laughs> it still has a chance for that. So you're a parent. You've got kids in the school system, right? Yes. Yeah, and in fact, I've got kids all through the school system right now. I've got one in elementary, one in middle school, and one in high school. And I really think that Judy Bloom quote speaks to um, a really important thing, which is parents should be aware and engaged with what their kids are reading. I think we don't protect our kids by keeping them from encountering anything that might be contrary to our family beliefs or family values. We protect them by letting them be safely exposed to ideas that then we can talk about in a safe environment and help them negotiate so that they're not having to negotiate hard ideas on their own. I really think you know, that families do, parents do have a say in what their kids read or they should, but I don't think that my rights as a parent extend to dictating what other parents or what other parents' children can read. Is that what's happening here with these with these uh, challenges? Because it's not challenging what's being taught in the classroom. It's what's being made available. Should someone go into the school library and should someone come across or search for this book? Oh, absolutely. I think that's what's happening. I think people are saying, I find this book personally offensive. But the problem is there are so many different viewpoints and so many different perspectives. How do we socially agree on what is the acceptable perspective? I don't think we can. I think that's where the First Amendment right comes in, that kids have, um, authors have a right to say what they want in their books and kids have a right to find those. I think one of the things that's most concerning to me is this equation of LGBTQ content with obscenity. Um, a lot of, my daughter's 13, she's in eighth grade and a lot of her friend group are queer. Um, she's friends with kids that identify as trans, um, gay, bisexual, non-binary. And, you know, people think, 
these kind of things are, are, you know, too hard for kids to read. And I think, but what about the kids who are these identities, who live this experience? They deserve to see themselves in books just as much as any other child out there. In fact, potentially more because these, we know that these kids are at higher risk for suicidality. And I know just as being a teacher, it can be really meaningful to kids to see themselves in the books that they read. It seems that parents, once again, are the ones who are uncomfortable with these conversations. Am I reading that perhaps right, Rosalind? Oh, absolutely. It's parents. I think, you know, in talking with my kids, their generation is so much more open-minded than my generation or my parents' generation. A lot of things um, that the parents are afraid of, the kids, it's no big deal to them. They're familiar with it. And I also think books have such an important role in teaching kids empathy and teaching them about stuff that they might not experience. I mean, I hope my kids will wait until they're old enough and mature enough to have sex. But the fact is that kids do have sex at young ages. And I would much rather that a kid learns about that from a book, what a healthy relationship should look like, than having to figure it out on their own. All right. So for all of you, I want, I'm want i curious what your social groups, what your professional groups are saying about this issue. If you've heard from folks that on one side of the issue or another are, are talking about this because the loudest voices get the press coverage. Rosalind, what's your group saying? Well, and you have to keep in mind that <laughs> my groups include lots of young adult authors and uh, university professors. And so I think uniformly my friend group, especially parents are really concerned about this um, because we know that, you know, the, the book that you're protesting for your kid might be the book that saves another kid's life. Um, and I don't think that we get to decide that for other people or for other people's children. Um, I think, yeah, I think it's really deeply concerning. Katie Wagner, Intellectual Freedom Co-Chair with the Utah Library Association. There's your professional circle and your personal circle. Can you give us some of uh, uh, stories from that? Yeah, um, there. I will say there's a lot of really fantastic librarians and educators from all over the state that are really concerned about this issue and we're working really hard to fight it. Um, and yeah, I also have a part of the, my friend group is part of the LGBTQ plus community. So it is really concerning when you see these books being challenged, but I think I would just wanna share with people that we're fighting for them. We're doing the work. <laughs> There's a lot of people that really care about this issue and are ready to, defend the freedom to read. I want to pull a quote from the KSL story on this subject where they spoke with Brighton High librarian Catherine Bates, who said, I did it, being ordered to remove books. I felt like it was an old yeller situation. I'm going to be the one to shoot the dog. Are librarians between a rock and a hard place on this issue, Katie? I think they can be. Um, it's hard to know what to do when you're faced with a challenge. It can be really scary, but there is help out there. There's a lot of organizations that are really fighting for you. And we do understand that people are sometimes between a rock and a hard place. And that doesn't make you a bad librarian or teacher at all. But definitely reach out for help from your community. What's your website for the ULA? Uh, ULA.org. And there's a lot of resources there. And Davina, what's happening in your circles professionally and personally on this issue? I would say very similar to what Katie described. Uh, my librarians, you know, over the course of the last few weeks have reached out independently. We've had discussions about 
you know, what we should be doing. We've been talking about our selection criteria and making sure that we're following that when we purchase books and, um, and, and reminding ourselves of what we do and how we can actually talk to parents um, and involve them in the conversation and what to do if a parent comes in with concerns. We really want to involve them in this process um, and, and stay open-minded. And I would also just, you know, to kind of tag on to what Katie was saying, I think we're sending a really strong message as we as we fight these challenges um, to all kids that we care about them and they're important to us. Um, and so, yeah. Well, I'm going to get in the Wayback Machine when I was a kid and I heard Tipper Gore and the Parents Music Resource Council was saying, this is not for kids. I went and made sure I found them. So uh, it's always interesting when parents get on this issue and want to ban or censor books or music or whatever. Kids are going to go look for it. They're going to pass that list around and find it. Right, Davina? Absolutely. I, I've come across so many in the last couple of days that I picked up that book that's being challenged in this school. And and so it's definitely, caught, you know, bringing attention to these books, which in my mind is a good thing. <laughs> well, let's go out with a song I know y'all are proud of. I, I actually sent this song to my librarians last Friday before the weekend just to give them some hope and and energy and, and, you know, I'm so proud of what they're doing in their schools for their students. Um, this is intellectual freedom. It's um, the Elton John, Philadelphia freedom. <laughs> I honestly don't know that song very well, but I found this one by the Salt Lake County, kind of a parody that they put together and it's fantastic. Let's share that now right here on KRCL 90.9 Radioactive. Thank you, everybody. Appreciate your time. Have a great holiday. Thank you so much, Laura. Thank you. Thank you. I used to use the card catalog, you know. Intellectual freedom, just another thing I'm grateful for this Thanksgiving season. And check tonight's show notes for links to the library organizations, Utah Educational Library Media Association and the Utah Library Association. I'm Laura Jones, and you're listening to Radioactive going to close the show tonight with Meet the DJ, where we talk with one of the volunteers here at KRCL. Listeners Community Radio of Utah turns 42 on December 3rd, and we couldn't do any of it without volunteers, some of whom have spent just about every week sharing music from their own collections with you. I've got the Hi, y'all. It's Brian Kelm from Monday Night's Red, White, and Blues program, 8 to 10.30, over uh, 41 years since March of 1980. Almost since day one, Brian Kelm. Yeah, about three months after we signed on the air. What prompted you to come down to the station, and what condition was the station in? Is it similar to what we're going through now, trying to rebuild? Well, yes and no. Technology's <laughs> it different. It was similar to how we're rebuilding, but it was a little bit different with duct tape and some, you know, soldering iron and certainly wasn't digital back in March of 1980. But I was in, um, I started in the fall of 79 in journalism, mass communications with an emphasis on radio broadcasting. I'd, I'd always had a fascination since I was a little kid of being into radio and I got tired of the late seventies garbage that had been on the radio compared to that, which was being played in the late sixties, early seventies, which was so phenomenal. And I figured, geez, I even got the name for a radio station. I can be K E L M. <laughs> so I thought I was destined for that, but 
as it was, I, I'm taking this intro to um, mass communications and my professor at the U, Tim Larson, said, hey, there's a new radio station I just heard about um, happening here in Salt Lake. It's called KRCL, it's at 90.9 FM. And uh, they had just signed on. And so this was like January, I believe of 1980. And, you know, I, I thought about it. And then I finally went in, um, in March when I had some time, about two months after I heard about it and talked with, um, I believe it was even Donna Land, um, if I recall. And they said, I said, I, I love blues and I'd love to play blues on this radio station. They said, great. What are you doing this Thursday night? And I said, nothing. They said, you're on. <laughs> and a little bit of trivia. Um, I started, I think it was 10 or 1030 until I wanted to turn the lights off and shut down the transmitter. So usually about midnight, sometimes if, you know, I didn't have a lot of homework and I didn't have to get up early the next Friday, it was 1 a.m. But Fret and Fiddle was on just before me, something in the eight to 10-ish range. Um, and then of course they moved to Sundays and I was on following them Thursday nights. And after about, it wasn't long, maybe a year or so, um, I was moved to Monday nights. But uh, it started off as uh, the Great Basin Blues. Well, it, it initially started off as Kelmy's Blues. My nickname uh, for time immemorial has been Kelmy. And so I, I didn't know any better. And I'm thinking, well, I don't know, Kelmy's Blues. But the station didn't want title-specific names of programs to a certain person because that person invariably would leave a month, six months, two years later, and they wanted more generic names like Sagebrush Serenade and Breakfast Jams, things like that, where the DJ could change. So in short order, I think it was only a, a couple of weeks, it was known as Kelmy's Blues. All of a sudden, I see in the little newspaper newsletter that KRCL started doing that my show was called Great Basin Blues. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, okay kind of nice didn't have any input on it but i like it well guess who did that who who would have been the most tied to the land of utah and in fact her last name is that but donna <laughs> land actually christened the name of great basin blues donna land one of the uh, big names in krcl's history uh, yeah the station for and then decades. that morphed into that lasted about 10 years I moved to Alaska for a summer to work on the Exxon Valdez oil spill and came back and Great Basin Blues uh, was taken over by Red, White and Blues by Truman. And so actually a, a couple of people, Dave Spencer, J.R. Rokich, Truman. Um, so they took my time slot and then I started alternating with them and broadcasting live broadcasts from the Dead Goat Saloon the last Monday of the month. And then Truman, of course, left for the Big Island, and then I resumed doing it again full time. 
You just couldn't let it go, could you, Brian? You went to uh, Alaska, Exxon Valdez oil spill. What was that about? Tell us about your time there. Well, I had just gotten out of law school and had started practicing law, so to speak, with a small law firm. I wasn't really digging it. I was a little bit disenchanted. And at that time, uh, the spring of 89, I believe, the Exxon Valdez oil spill happened. Well, I was... I, I had always had a fascination with Alaska, wanted to go there, knew I'd be going there in short order. And this was just a prompt. It was a sign. So I decided to go up there to do anything I could, whether it was washing ducks or whatever, and work on the Exxon Valdez oil spill with my best friend, Scott Johnson. And he was a carpenter. He got up there, did carpentry work, made a killing. I went up there just wide-eyed and bushy-tailed and and I started teaching a safety class because I had a little bit of teaching experience. I was an attorney and an EMT. So that all played well into teaching this safety class, how to be safe on the Exxon Valdez oil spill, which of course I knew nothing about, but I sat in a bunch on the safety training class and had some training myself. And then before long in a week, week and a half, I was teaching this four-hour class that anybody who worked on the Exxon Valdez oil spill had to take and get the certificate. It was this OSHA-approved course. And then the next summer, I went up there and I helped an attorney, Bill Bixby, represent fishermen against Exxon for their fishing losses. So you morphed at some point from MassCom and DJ to the law. The law and the blues have been constants in your life, as far as I'm aware. Yeah, those two things, absolutely. That's exactly right. And you've figured out how to to make them serve you and your interests. And um, I'm kind of curious about sticking with KRCL for nearly 41 years. You know, a couple summers off to go to Alaska or to uh, go surf around the world or something like that. But why do you keep coming back? Yeah, well, um, that's a good question. Uh, So many people through law school, especially, were blown away that I was still doing it. They're like, I I can't believe you do. I'm like, hey, it's my savior. It's great. It's not billable hours, though, Brian. (laughs) Sorry? It's not billable hours, though. No, it's not at all. I can't tell you how much money I've lost because of blues. But it's more than made up for it in the the joy that I get in disseminating it because it's such a passion I have. And I I just so look forward to turning on the audience to, um, to, to blues. Initially it was, there was so little new blues coming out in the eighties and even into the nineties. And so I was playing a lot of, you know, the classics, B.B. King and Howlin' Wolf and Sonny Boy Williamson and Elmore James. And and Lord knows I love them more than anything. And I wish I could play more of them. But as time went on and it became easier to produce CDs, I started playing and largely now just play new blues artists because it does no good for B.B. King or Howlin' Wolf or Muddy Waters to play their music right now. I mean, arguably, sure, maybe their estate gets a few pennies. But if you don't know who B.B. King and Muddy Waters are by now, go to YouTube and and check it out, man, because 
I need to, in my precious two and a half hours, play music by touring current musicians who are struggling out there to make a name for themselves and to get people to their gigs. So I want to support them and turn people on to what's happening in the blues today. And yes, I sneak in a, a, a classic once in a while, but 90, 93.78% of my show is going to be currently touring blues artists that I'm trying to support and help. We'll talk about that a bit because you've gone on to form the Utah Blues Society. You have a blues cruise that you also lead, and I want to hear how that's been affected by the pandemic. But tell me, how big is your music collection since you started this back in 1980? And I'm guessing already had a bit of a collection in order to come down and, and play music as well as what was coming into this station. But tell us, you know, vinyl, CD, 8-track, digital, how many songs would you say you have? Oh, geez, probably. Well, that's a multifaceted question. How many songs do I have right now? Um, close to probably 10,000. Um, and then that includes CDs that I've now put on my, my MacBook Pro. So I'm, I'm trying to do, like many people, trying to whittle down and create more space in my house by getting rid of CDs and just putting them on my computer. And records, I did the same a little bit. I still, own, I only have probably 50 vinyl because for me, I'm not one of these vinyl, you know, aficionados. I think it's a pain in the ass, frankly, to get up and flip the record every 15 to 20 minutes. So I'm more of a CD guy where I can listen for an hour and not have to deal with changing something. And then cassettes is where I really started back in 1980 at the Blue Mouse at the original KRCL studio. I had just a few records, but I had a gazillion cassettes and I still have a ton of classic cassettes, but I, I don't play them on the, on the radio because they're low sound quality. And I listened to probably, I like just yesterday, I listened to four new CDs many of which are going to get one or two songs off of them for airplay. Some of which will get repeated airplay because they're really strong, like, you know, Kingfish's brand new CD, Carolyn Wonderland, the guitar player I just saw with John Mayall up at the Park City Egyptian Theater. She's got a new CD on Alligator Records, phenomenal, you know, blah, blah, blah. But I listened to four, at least 400 CDs every stinking year and i listen to every track because these artists spent a lot of time and money to produce this cd that they're very proud of and i want to give them the respect they deserve so i listen to every cd i get and i listen to every song now not every song of course can or will make it on the radio but i at least give it a shot so uh, it's just takes so much time. And a lot of these CDs that I will put in the KRCL library, which is only about 20, if that 15 to 20 a year will go into the permanent KRCL library uh, because we only have so much room and only have so much time to play them. But I'll spend multiple lis listenings on those CDs. And I make notes, handwritten notes about every track 
on those primo uh, CDs. And it, it's, uh, <laughs> it just takes a lot of time. Man. Well, that's, and, that's uh, gotta be a labor of love then, Brian, because for 41 years, you're a practicing lawyer. That means you are all in and will continue to be. Where does, where does red, white, and blue sit in the blues community? You, you know, Utah, the country around the globe, because I'm guessing you've got fans much like Talakola does on Sunday nights and the community it serves all around the world. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, I got a bunch in Europe. Um, I'm, I'm a uh, main stage MC on every blues cruise, and I've made connections via that with people all over the world. Um, I was blessed by getting uh, an international uh, blues award. Uh, it's the Blues Music Award for non-performing artists called the KBA, Keeping the Blues Alive which is given to uh, about eight to 12 people every year in Memphis. Um, and three years ago, I was, I was graciously awarded one of those, um, which, which gave a lot of visibility to Utah and the Utah Blues Festival and to KRCL. Um, but people just, I just saw Kingfish here. Um, and, you know, he hears about, the Utah Blues Festival, which he played at three years ago before he was he was anybody, really. Nobody had, had heard of him, but Trip Hopkins and I had on the Blues Cruise and otherwise, and we said, we got to get this guy before he goes big. Well, he played the Depot on a Sunday night to about four or 500 people. That's just mind-blowing. Um, so in trying to cultivate these these newer artists that's a that's a big thing that we try to do with the with the blues society and with the blues festival and yeah speaking of other artists who were just through town the legendary john mayall was just through town and his guitar player carolyn wonderland out of out of austin texas played the dead goat saloon um back in the day on my live radio broadcast the blue devil's blues review broadcast the last monday of the month and she was like yeah, what's going on with the dead goat? I go on the blues cruise. Any of the old time uh, blues artists that have been around a while, they always ask about the dead goat saloon and the Zephyr club. And um, they're legendary clubs. And there were legendary shows there by the best of the best throughout the 80s and 90s. It's a, it's a heartbreak to think of those. You and I have been around long enough to have seen so many shows there. Um, played shows there. But the new KRCL that's starting to take shape, our location associated with and supported by Give Group, and which owns the union, uh, I'm thinking there's going to be a great opportunity to do live blues shows again. Is that something that tantalizes you as we start to envision the future of KRCL and coming out of this pandemic as a community? Oh, absolutely. I think that's a natural marriage. And that's that's one of the first things I thought when I heard we were moving right next to a live music venue, I, I thought, well, how perfect is that? We should resume some, some live music broadcasts. They, they generate such a buzz and such a great interest, both to people that come down because they want to be a part of that live experience, or if you got stuck with the kids or you're under the weather, you know, you can tune in in the comfort of your own home. So it really cuts both ways. And back in the day at the Dead Goat Saloon, we had innumerable people that said, yeah, I was just listening on the radio 
and heard this killer blues that was broadcasting live at the Dead Goat Saloon. So I came down. What is it about hearing the blues live that just takes it up a notch from listening to, say, Red, White, and Blues on Monday nights? Yeah, you know, you can make an argument that, oh, well, listening to jazz, it's so much better live and, and bluegrass and rock. And, and I'm not going to argue that, but I will argue that there is no better way to hear blues than live. It is a very visceral, raw, emotional genre of music, which cannot be faked cannot be flubbed. And when it's done right, it's easy to play. Blues is super easy to play. It's like harmonica. It's easy to play. It's really hard to play top shelf though. And that goes for blues and harmonica and of course any instrument. But when it's done right, and when you hear a top shelf artist, it just rips at your heartstrings and makes i I've, i see people cry i see people laugh i see people in a trance in just like this this deer in the headlights days that are just mesmerized by it um and the artists just always give especially when they do 110 percent that it can't be beat there's nothing more powerful than killer live blues And that is Brian Kelm, host of Red, White, and Blues, Monday nights, 8 o'clock to 10.30, right here on KRCL. I'm Laura Jones, and that is our show for tonight. I hope you have a great holiday weekend with those that you love, or at least you like, and don't talk politics. Check tonight's show notes for the last two weeks of Brian's show, On Demand, made possible by listeners like you who support krcl.org. Let's go out with a song handpicked by Brian Kelm. Hey, how about, um, you know, I talked about Kingfish a little bit, and he's he's really on the up and up. He's uh, what everybody's calling the future of the blues, 22 years old, uh, just three years out of high school, and he just came out with his sophomore release on the venerable Alligator Records label, and uh, he did this song live uh, the other Sunday at the Depot, and... Um, Man, he is just sounding so good. He, after Buddy Guy, I mean, he's about it. You got your Buddy Guy and Kenny Wayne Shepherd and Joe Bonamassa. Well, you, you can now put this kid in there. Chris Tone, Kingfish Ingram, and the title track from his brand new CD just came out this late summer. 662, and that refers to the area code of his home digs of Clarksdale, Mississippi. I come from a- Nothing